Welcome to The Process Effect. I'm so glad you're here. This week's topic is something that I am absolutely obsessed with and completely passionate about and cannot stop thinking about, cannot stop trying to find a way to improve. (laughs) And what is that topic? It is feedback on student work. The power of feedback to change improve the learning situation and how certain kinds of feedback can help learners who are dependent on coach or teacher for certain kinds of feedback. It can help those learners who are dependent on the feedback become more independent learners. Yes, you heard that right. And I'm about to tell you how and why. I had made lots of notes for this podcast, and then I found this amazing book, and I found some other great, great articles. And those, that book and those articles will become the focus of Friday's, this Friday's, Books We Love. And I will share it with you. The book is actually about something different, or the angle of the book. It's angling in a different direction. But the core of the book, that the part that I really love, is focused on how do we support learners to become their best learning selves? How do we do that? Yeah, that's what we'll talk about today. So how do you empower people with feedback? And how can you disempower them? You know, you can give a learner feedback that will crush them forever. And you think, oh, that's exaggerating. No, let me tell you. In all of my years teaching and working with so many different learners, I have seen time and time again, across the spectrum, I have seen learners who are absolutely convinced they cannot do this one thing. Sometimes they're convinced they cannot do a whole category of things because of one thing one day one teacher said to them. One margin note in a paper that crushed them. One sentence uttered in an office that crushed them. I'm sure that teacher never thought about it again. They were just having a bad day (laughs) or whatever happened. We all have bad days. We all say things we might want to correct, but sometimes we just get in the habit of giving a certain kind of feedback. And because none of it has flashed back at us, we continue doing that and we do it without a second thought. And we don't realize that all of these people receiving the feedback are, you know, tender, sensitive human beings who look to us for support because they're trying to step up. And what is it that makes some of us not want to help people step up, right? So the first thing I would say is to realize that your feedback has the power, your feedback on student work, and especially on student writing, has the power to help people step up. And that's what we're all in the business of trying to do right? Even if you're trying to help somebody with their backstroke, (laughs) you're trying to help them step up into a better backstroke. If you're trying to help somebody with their running form, if you're trying to help somebody factor polynomials, you're trying to help somebody with their sentence structure, you're helping them step up. And so when you give some sort of cruel, crushing comment, it's quite possible, and I say this because I have witnessed it so many times, it's quite possible that you could keep them from ever stepping into that thing that they want to do and that you say you want them to do. There's a time and place for tough love, maybe, but not in feedback 
to a learner when the learner is trying to learn something. You always want to think that your feedback has the power to help someone improve. What kind of feedback helps them do that? Let's talk about those things. Let's, let's talk about the kind of feedback that helps. The first thing is that it's timely feedback. If you give feedback to someone two weeks after they completed the work or a month after they completed the work, they're not that learner anymore. You know what I mean? Especially in writing. They've moved on. That idea is not there anymore. They're not the writer who wrote that. They have moved on. Their mind is occupied with other things. You need to provide the feedback while the students are still in the midst of that topic, in the middle of that assignment, in the middle of whatever performance it is. Think about it. Somebody has bad running form. You see them running badly and they're like, can you take a look at my form and give me some feedback? You watch them run and you think, oh, can I talk to you? I don't have any time. Can I, can I talk to you about that like next week? Well, this is somebody who runs every day. So what happens? Every day they're running with bad form and so now their form will be worse a week from now, right? They're so cemented in that form it will take longer to help them correct and, and reverse and turn around their form. So timely feedback really matters. Also, feedback that's delivered in a high-stress situation will not be received in a way that helps the learner as much as feedback that is delivered in a lower-stress situation. We've talked about guilt in previous podcasts. So let's think about this. Make sure that the learner feels supported. When we sit down to talk about your math problems, when we sit down to talk about your essay, when we sit down to talk about how things are going in your piano lessons, whatever it happens to be, make sure that there is a feeling of understanding and acceptance and generosity so that when we sit down to talk about this, even if the person really needs a lot of help, even if they need to really turn around whatever it is they're doing, and even if everything is off and they need to completely change their whole mode, their whole approach to something, they need to feel understood first. They need to receive the information in a low-stress environment, in a low-stress situation. So two so far, timely feedback and feedback that's delivered in a low-stress supportive environment. A third characteristic of really useful feedback, step-up feedback instead of shut-down feedback. It's just enough, and it's very specific. So we don't say, oh, that was a great paper. Well, tell me what's good about it. Oh, that's a good paper, except, you know, just watch those commas. What about the commas? I can see what you're doing in that equation, but you need to show your work. What do you mean? What part am I missing out on? What part am I not sharing with you, right? This is what the learner is thinking. Tell me, tell me the things. So it needs to be really specific, but it needs to be to the point, just the right dose. Sort of a rule of thumb in feedback on student writing that we don't want to talk about more than three lower order issues at a time because that's really all the writer can manage. So even if they have 20 different kinds of mistakes in the paper, 20 different patterns of error that we want to prioritize and say, okay, what's the most important? What are they doing the most? And so we prioritize and focus and we don't talk about the 20, we talk about the top three, right? Because that's the right dose. That's a little nugget. That's enough that 
to process at the moment. And that's all you can really process. Let's take three things. Let's turn it into a lesson for the next week. And let's get better at those three things. Because once you're better at those three things, and just in my long experience as a writing teacher, sometimes if you improve those three things, you're doing more than improving those three things. You're improving the writer's sense that their writing can get better. And you're improving the writer's sense that you've given them a way to pay closer attention, closer productive attention to their paper. And so usually when they are... Um, improving their skills in those three little areas. They're improving everything else about their paper because they're paying attention to it and they're paying positive, productive attention to it. A lot of people pay attention to their papers, but they pay attention like they read it through and they think, I don't even know what's wrong or, oh, I, I don't know how to fix this. You know, there's this, they, they read it and they sort of turn off because they just, they're not equipped, they're not empowered to make it better. And so if you show them, wait, there are these three things, there are other things going on, there are these three things, and I know you can fix these, these are easy fixes, and I'll show you how to fix them. Be very specific, just narrow it down, focus on just those few. Ask them, show them how to look for that in, the, in their paper, in their writing. Let them use their own writing as a worksheet to correct that issue, and they'll get much better at that and at those small problems that they had, and they will become more attentive in a productive and positive way to all of the rest of their writing because they'll know they feel like they are, they're powerful in those three areas now. So there's a ring happening in the background because these things happen. So another thing that we want to do, and I think we just sort of glossed on that when we talked about the third one about very specific feedback and very limited feedback, is to be instructive rather than evaluative. And to be instructive rather than evaluative means, and I pronounced it that other way the first time I wanted you to see, okay, we're evaluating it, and I love the fact that that word is a part of the evaluative. So we want to be instructive. So our feedback should teach them something. So instead of just saying, this is wrong, comma, problem, this is wrong, not showing your work, that's wrong, you're lifting your knees too high, or that's wrong, you're, you need to raise your wrists when you play, whatever it is. If we instead instruct them, instead of being just saying, this is right, this is wrong, go away. <laughs> and sometimes that's the message, right? If instead of doing that, we offer instruction to say, ah, you're missing a comma here. We call that the Oxford comma. And so anytime you have a list, you need to, you can see it as an equation, a comma space, b comma space, and c. A, B, C are the three items in the list. And so right now you have three items in the list, but you only have a comma after that first item. Do you see that? Yeah, you see that? So in the future, you can just think about this formula, and anytime you know you're making a list, just always make sure you have a comma after that penultimate item right before the coordinating conjunction that precedes your final item in the list. Does that make sense? You get that? So... Do you see the difference here? So I could just say, you're missing a comma. Well, that's evaluative. Right, wrong, yes, no. I evaluated it. You don't meet the standard. Instructive means I've empowered that person to do better the next time. I've given them a new rule, a new set of skills, a different way of looking at the same thing next time they need to look at their own work 
instead of depending on a teacher to give them feedback. And think about this. Like, you are important. The teacher is so, so important. Students need a guide, a coach, a teacher, someone who believes in them, someone who knows something, shares that knowledge, helps them step up and into that knowledge. That is so important. But we also have to keep our eye on the people that we're instructing 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road. Do you want someone to be always continually, utterly dependent on other people for knowledge and information, or do you want them to be self-sufficient learners with tremendous self-efficacy? That's what we want, right? And so the way to, to move them into that is instead of having the teacher stand as the judge and the evaluator and the critic, have the teacher or coach teach the learner how to evaluate their own work. That feedback should be a continuation of instruction. You can do that. You, you can do that. What are some other ways that you can do this? Like you think, okay, that sounds great. And I get the, I get the example about the Oxford comma. Thank you very much. But what are some other things that you know, I can do. Well, one of the things is, you know, you, you tend to set the curriculum and hand that to the learner and just say, here's what you have to do today, or here's what you have to do this week, get these things done. And then school is over, or, you know, then that that's what you have to do is also really helpful to give the learner tools so that they can track their own progress more than just a checklist, something to really check their progress. So I had these three issues on my last three essays. Do I still have those issues or do I now have different, more sophisticated issues? Does that make sense? How can they track their progress so that they know that they are moving along and losing some of their problems because they've overcome them and now they're growing into the next level of learning, growing into the next level of sophistication. It's really useful to give, if it's a spreadsheet, if it's something, a board, you know, that they put on the wall and track it themselves, it's on a whiteboard, whatever works for you and your situation, you can put that into their hands and just expose and share your curriculum and your curriculum goals with them and say, here's what we need to do and here's how I need to track it. But how do you think you would track it? How do you, how would you track whether or not you know something? Because that might be interesting to me. And then it helps you have this sort of assessment conversation without calling it that. Sometimes it's also useful to give them the rubrics and have a conversation about the rubrics. So how do you know how you're doing well, how well you're doing with your writing? You know, let's look at a, a four-dimension rubric or a five-dimension rubric and say, okay, well, one thing is we, we want to make sure that you have a central point. Another thing is we want to make sure that you can develop your ideas and you have lots of good support. Another thing is we want to make sure that you're making the right rhetorical moves and that your structure and arrangement looks good. Another thing that we might want to do, you, know, you get that idea? So that you can walk them through the rubric in a way that makes sense to both of you. And that gives them a way to structure the um, product that they're producing, right, for whatever assignment it might be. But it also involves them at a decision-making level so that when they're producing the product, whether it is 
a set of math problems or a science project or a writing project that they're deciding, they're, they're using the rubric as a tool and they're making decisions about how they want that project to go. And so that involves them in decision-making and so they're learning decision-making skills. So decision-making, critical thinking, that's not a subject of its own. That's something that's embedded in everything you do. If you think, I did a lot of critical thinking to pull this whole curriculum together, or I did a lot of critical thinking to think about how I wanted this to go for you, how can I expose you, the learner, to that process? How can I help you learn to do critical thinking and help you develop your decision-making skills? Well, there are opportunities throughout the curriculum to do that even when we're talking about the curriculum and which project should go first, second, third, etc., there's an opportunity there. And so engage the learners in that dialogue. Right now, it's sometimes one-sided, right? We make the decisions, they do the things. And that might be one reason why we're encountering a little resistance sometimes. If learners are part of the decision-making process, they tend to buy into whatever they have decided, right? So something to consider. It's one way to help them see what you're doing as a sort of learning partnership instead of an us-them sort of thing. Like we ask you to do it and you have to do it. Also, you know, you can break down the assessment language that you use and the learning language that you use and um, invent or use terms that might be more useful or accessible to your learner, depending on the learner's age. And so... That's something else that you can do to put the decisions and the information in their hands, give them access to it so that you can have a conversation, again, that involves them as learning partners. Another thing that is useful is you can build into learning time regular time that they can use to process what they've learned. So it's not a quote extra, but it's, a, it's embedded in the learning process in your home, that you learn these things, but then we reflect on what we've learned. And we look at, we try to track what we've learned. And that, again, makes the learner a part of that larger conversation about what am I learning, why am I learning this, to what end, how do I know when I get there. And then we're not so dependent on these tests to tell us. We know before we take the test that we know the stuff, right? The test should never be the final arbiter of what you know. Your learner and you can really know how well things will go before you sit down to take the test if you've been tracking not just assignments done and you have this sort of evaluative feedback, but instead assignments are done and I looked back on that assignment and thought, you know, I'm still struggling with commas. Or, you know, there's still that transition. Like, I get how to work with this kind of angle. I'm not that great talking about this kind of angle. I am still working on this kind of equation. So I need to work on that more before I move forward and take whatever the test is that will, quote, evaluate how well I know something. And so this sort of ongoing practice of metacognition, this sort of ongoing expectation that we will reflect on our work and that we will have metacog conversations about the work, that's another sort of embedded critical thinking skill. 
not just, you gave me the work, I did the work, can I go do something else now? But, you gave me the work, I understand why you gave me the work. I'm doing the work, and I know that I'm not done with the work until I've also sat down to say, what did I learn? What part of the process of doing this worked for me? What did not work? What will I take forward into my learning in the future? And what can I leave behind? Because what we're what we are trying to do when we're asking students to adopt and generate a process for all of the things that they're learning is we're exposing them to far more tools in the toolbox than they'll ever need. Because what we want them to do is test them all out, take them all, take all the tools on a test drive. Ten ways to generate ideas for an essay. Try them all out and find the ones that work for you. And those are the tools that go in your own learning toolbox, right? That's what we're doing with everything. Here are five different ways to factor polynomials. What works for you? That's the tool that goes into your toolbox. Instead of having someone try to do things only one way, because there's not just one way to do most things. Instead of saying, this is the only way to do it, I'm going to have to change curriculum if I want to back away from that way of thinking. Instead think, here's something we need to learn. I know there are 5 or 10 or 15 different ways we can learn this. And we'll try this one way, and if that fits, awesome. If my student struggles with that, we're going to try another way, and we'll try another way, and another way, until we find the way, the tool, that works with this subject, this learner, at this moment, and that's what goes in their toolbox. We have a lot of resistance to learning because we're trying only one tactic, only one method. And one of the great gifts of the Internet age is that all of those other methods are out there just waiting for us to tap into them. And most of them are available and ready out there for free. And people have generously explained them to us. And so you don't have to be expert in that area, an expert in the pedagogy of that area, in order to expose your learner to all the possible ways to learn that. And that's, that's just a great, great gift. We should just all pause, lift our hands up to the sky, and say thank you right now for that, because it's such a useful thing for our students. And the last thing today, and then we'll have closing thought. We talk about the feedback so that it, it sounds as though everything ends with a feedback, right? That we tell people what to do. We guide them in the assignment or the curriculum tells somebody what to do. They do the thing. We evaluate them, which of course we've already said that's not what we do. We want to give feedback that's instructive. That's focused. That's limited. <laughs> that's encouraging. That is provided in a low-stress environment. All those things we just said. We tend to think that, you know, we give someone feedback and then that's the end of it. So the last thought I want to leave you with before we have a closing thought is the learner needs to provide feedback on the feedback. The learner needs to digest and take in that feedback and be able to come back in their metacog response, right? They need to be able to come back and say, here's what was useful about this feedback. Somebody gave me this feedback and this part of it will be useful for me because I can use it in this way when I do this again. But you know, the thing I don't respond to that well is this kind of feedback because I don't really know what to do with it. That kind of honesty in the exchange is very important. And it's not inviting. I know some of you are thinking right now it's inviting disrespect. No, 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 no. Instead of inviting unquestioning, unblinking respect, 
it's inviting a mutual respect. Because what are right now we have this person living in our household who's doing X, Y, Z to learn things. But we always have to keep our eye on that person 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now. And that person needs to be able to take any criticism that comes their way and digest it in a productive way. And that productive way tends to look something like this. Number one, what's useful in what they just said? Even if it's a painful thing that somebody said to me, what is the useful part of it? What is the part that I can use? What is the part that helps me turn to that person and say, you know, you're right, and I didn't see that. And so thank you for pointing that out. That is awesome. I will get to work on that right away. But there's also the second part, which is, you know, this other part, I'm starting to know myself well enough that when somebody gives me that kind of feedback, it's really not useful for me. Sorry to say. So thank you so much for noticing that. But when you just say good paper, I... I don't know what you mean. When you say show your work, I don't know what you mean. When the rubric is a mystery until I've already done the assignment, I don't know what the priorities were in that assignment until I'm done, and that's not useful. That's a part of their development as critical thinkers. That's a part of their development as decision makers. And so we need to embrace that and try to see them as their 25-year-old, 30-year-old, 35-year-old selves Think of them as a senior citizen making making decisions on their own. All of that, all of those processes, all of those skills are being developed right now. So help them with that. So thank you so much for joining me in this conversation about peer feedback and the value of peer, peer feedback and how it can help improve learning and how it can help with critical thinking and decision making skills development. At the process effect, we make it simpler to incorporate learning processes that have an amazing effect. Thank you for joining us.